Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number one of The Stone Wolves. We've got about 17, 18 minutes worth of story for you today. It kicks off with a bang, and then there's a logical break, which will lead us to episode two, which is about 40 to 41 minutes. So a little bit less this week, a little bit more next week. Put in a bag, shake it up. Everything comes out with sprinkles. We're super pumped to bring this one to you. Remember, this falls between the end of GFL Book 5, The Champion, and the start of GFL Book 6, The Gangster. I know we already released The Gangster in the podcast feed. It was a very tough call that A Real Girl and Big John Viscara and I went through trying to figure out, knowing that you guys know the universe so well, we were trying to figure out what was the best way to give you a delightful reveal and a surprise you didn't see coming. And that was why we decided to put the gangster out first only for you lovely, lovely junkies who knew everything inside and out. I think as people discover the series going forward in the future, it's going to be perfectly logical for them to go through book five, the champion, then the stone wolves, then go into the gangster. So you may know some of the reveals if you've already listened to The Gangster, but you do not know all of the reveals, my friend. Knowing some of the reveals in The Stone Wolves and experiencing those reveals in real time in The Stone Wolves is comparable to looking at a Polaroid of a hurricane and being strapped buck naked to an oak tree in the center of that hurricane right when that scent, the eye of the hurricane goes by and you get inundated buffeted, slapped around about the midriff and the torso and the face with gale force winds. That is what it will be like for you to listen to the Stone Wolves, even though you think you know what is coming, I assure you, gale force winds slapping your naked body is not something that you can prepare for. So here we go with episode number one of the Stone Wolves. Hope you guys dig it. The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Chapter 1. The Killer The killer descended upon the world like an apocalyptic comet. There were soldiers to kill. Soldiers guarding a secret compound on Laramie 3. Humans, Heavy G, Snarling Key, Slobbering Sklorno, Quith, maybe even some hurrah. They would all die. If they treasured their life in the first place, then they shouldn't have signed up. The soldiers represented an emerging faction within the galaxy-spanning network known as the Zoroastrian Guild. Members of the Guild were either dubbed fearless freedom fighters or gutless terrorists, depending on what news network you might favor, or what drinking establishment you frequented, or how hard the boot heel of the Kratorakian Empire was crushing your planet's will on any given week. 
the Zoroastrian guild had a cancer. A rot, corrupting the organization's core, scattered dots of black fungus spreading across the surface. The guild was changing, shifting. What had been a unit of disciplined revolutionaries fighting an occupying army had become a band of murderers that indiscriminately slaughtered civilians in the name of liberty. Civilians and other members of the guild. Guild leaders had been executed. New leaders had emerged. Leaders with hidden agendas. The killer didn't know the reason for this shift from covert honor to outright barbarism, from tactical strikes and targeted assassinations to indiscriminate bombings and newly created orphans, widows, and widowers. No one knew the reason, but everyone knew the corruption's fuel source, a mysterious supply of priceless gems. Some guild members who had once fought for freedom now fought for money. No matter how vile the job, someone, somewhere, was ready to do it for the right payday. A random guild member had tagged the new faction with the name Vermada, an ancient word meaning eclipse. Maybe that nickname had been meant as a joke, gallows humor in the face of internal destruction, but the name stuck. The Vermada's influence had taken root. Those that tried to dig it out, more often than not, wound up dead. The killer was here to dig. He would see who wound up dead. His combat pod smashed into the planet's strip mine surface, dragging a fresh scar across rock and dirt. Combat landings weren't about a delicate touchdown. They were about speed. Come down fast, land just soft enough that the passengers didn't become biojelly, then get out quick and get clear. The killer was on the ground even before the pod crunched to a full stop. He wore tactical combat trousers, boots, and webbing brimming with ammunition. Over it all, a long cloak. Four strange, dense cables curled up from the cloak's back, reconnecting at the right shoulder. Those cables glowed for an instant, then the cloak shimmered and matched his surroundings, providing near-perfect camouflage. Across the bare skin of his face, patterns glowed red, the product of subdermal tattoos he'd installed years ago. Those patterns were fiery beacons in the twilight. His eyes blazed the color of blood. His black dreadlocks whipped behind him like a clothesline bedsheet as he raced across the cracked surface. As he moved, he pulled the cloak's hood over his head, and the killer all but vanished into the night itself. He sprinted toward the Vermada compound. He cared not for stealth, not yet. He knew his enemy had seen him coming in. Better for them to know the killer had come for them. His legend bred fear, and fear made it hard to aim straight. It was not lost on him that these Vermada were still, technically, members of the guild, just like he was. Long ago, he'd killed his own countrymen in the name of service. Those memories haunted him, 
but this was the first time he would use his talents against his fellow revolutionaries. But the Vermada soldiers weren't his comrades. Not anymore. They had taken from him his most prized possession, someone he valued more than his own life. They had taken her. He would take her back. And for their transgression, they would all die. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Drew stared at the map display, at the red dot that marked the killer's location. As that dot reached the first ruined buildings on the ghost town's outer limits, the blue dots representing Druge's mercenaries closed in. Then the red dot blinked out. In the fortified basement of a once-abandoned mansion, Druge Thorne screamed at his six techs, demanding they get that red dot online. They screamed back, saying they were trying saying the target must have some kind of signal-scrambling technology that made him invisible to scanners. The first blue dot blinked out. That wasn't due to stealth tech. Wasn't because of a malfunction. That mercenary was dead. The second blue dot fluttered briefly, then also went dark. Druge's mercenaries were hardened killers. Combat vets. Sentients who had fought and bled and taken life dozens of times over. How could they go down so fast? The monitors blared with the sounds of the mercenaries out in the ghost town, their weapons firing, their shouts and commands to one another, the noises of their deaths. The third blue dot blinked out. Then the fourth, a hundred meters from the third. Then, all at once, the fifth, the sixth, and seventh. 
Druge felt a coppery sensation in his belly. Fear. He'd heard of the killer. You couldn't be a member of the guild and not hear about the legendary man. The rumors were apparently true. Two hundred meters from the mansion, the eighth blue light blinked out. A hundred and fifty meters, the ninth and the tenth. A hundred meters out, the eleventh. The blinking out blue lights were an inverse tracer bullet, a breadcrumb path of destruction drawing inexorably closer. The twelfth. The thirteenth. Cameras were positioned all over the ghost town. Some showed nothing but empty streets, collapsing buildings decorated with faded peeling paint. Others showed Druge's men moving, hopefully, toward the threat. All it would take is one lucky bullet, one lucky shot, and this would be over. Occasionally, the camera showed a brief flash of something that was there, then wasn't. When that happened, sometimes the monitor showed a disemboweled key falling, a decapitated human a sclorno riddled with holes that sprayed clear blood. The techs figured something out. In the holo tank, the red light flicked on, then off, then on, a staccato rhythm that brought forth a special kind of terribleness. The red light blinking at 50 meters away, then reappearing at 40, out at 30, back at 20. Each time the blinking red connected with a steady blue dot, the dots would seem to combine become a brief blip of purple before the blue winked out for good and the red would zip onward toward its next victim, relentless, ravenous. Was the killer using a gun? A sword? A knife? Druge didn't know, and it hardly mattered. At the rate the killer moved, and at the rate Druge's mercenaries died, the man would soon reach the old mansion. And then, the murderous monster would butcher his way down to the heart of the building, toward the basement safe room. The techs in the basement weren't just wireheads. Each one of them was a life-taker almost equal to those on the surface. If the soldiers up there couldn't stop the killer, would the ones down here stand a chance? No. Would Druge? He knew he would not. Druge was a soldier. Hiding did not suit him. He hungered to be out there commanding from the field. But he also valued his life and the lives of his family. He needed his captive, his prize, the warrior goddess, the precious thing the killer had come for, to remain in custody for about 30 minutes more. She was in the next room, restrained. On a table next to her, Druja's knife, slick with blood. She would live, but she had yet to give up the information Druge had been paid to retrieve. The warrior goddess wasn't stupid. All the noise, the commotion, she would know Druge was under attack. And, knowing such, she would find the resolve to hold on no matter what he did to her. The interrogation was over. Druge had failed there. But the mission could continue. If he got her off planet, the real professionals could take over. They would have all the time there was to carve out whatever secrets she contained. Druge's eyes flitted to an upper quadrant of the holotank, to the countdown clock position there. A key gunship, commanded by fellow Vermada operatives, was on its way to the old mansion. 
It would land in roughly 24 minutes, then snatch up Druge, his family, and the warrior goddess. Delivering her would elevate him to the highest ranks of this new faction within the Zoroastrian guild. No more commanding a freezing base at a pissant abandoned mining town in the mountains of Laramie III. He would move up the ladder, be tapped for more missions. Soon, he'd be set for life, the future of his children guaranteed by more gemstones than he could hold in both hands. Soon, the galaxy would know his name. Thorn. Yes, exactly. Thorn. He blinked. Wait, that had been a voice. A voice from the holotank. He glanced back to the center of the tank. There, seeming to stare straight at him, was a face lined with blazing red lights, lights that blurred the nose, the eyes, the mouth, the chin. Those lights were a form of camouflage, meant more to generate fear than to hide the man's identity, but it did the latter almost as well as the former. Thorn, I'm coming for you. The killer. Black dreadlocks, hanging like shadowy snakes. Eyes wide with hate, with a lust for killing. Druze checked the camera's location. It was inside the mansion. The holotank went dark. The killer had broken the camera. Druze screamed orders, calling all units back to the mansion. Tex switched through the mansion's cameras, a rapid-fire pulse of images, as they sought some glimpse of the demon, searched for intel to feed the converging mercenaries. Druge heard the battle not only from the holotank speaker film, but dimly through the armored ceiling itself. Gunfire, explosions, screams. The holotanks locked into surveillance cameras in a former large dance hall converted to a military ops center. Machine gun fire roared from the speaker film as the killer smashed through a pair of 20-foot-tall wooden doors, crashed past ding military crates and field gear. He slid to a stop beneath an enormous mosaic of a woman, a decades-old salute to a former mining director's wife, perhaps. The brown tiles that made up her eyes seemed to gaze disapprovingly upon the unfolding violence. Three of Druge's mercenaries rushed into the room just as the killer seemed to fade into the walls themselves. The mosaic vanished in a haze of shattered tile and dust. A mercenary went down. A blue light blinked out. Then another. The last, a heavy G-man, turned in place, confused, wondering where his enemy was, when a hand slid out of the air, locked on his neck. Druge saw the glowing red lines of the killer's face as the hand rose, lifting the heavy G as if he were nothing but a paperweight. The heavy G sailed across the room, smashed into the wall, fell to the ground, and did not move. The strange cloak shimmered. In the holotank, Druge stared at the killer. A big human man, so big he might have passed for heavy G himself. The killer held a massive five-shot revolver in his equally massive hand. Beneath the gun's thick barrel, a wide, jutting blade glazed with blood and dust. The pistol could be used either as a firearm or as a hatchet. That blade, powered by the huge man holding it, 
Druge thought of the decapitated soldiers, wondered if he might be the next victim. Bile, hot and acidic, filled Druge's mouth. I'm coming for you, the killer said, locking eyes with one of the cameras watching him. You took what matters to me. I'll take what matters to you. That fear in Druge's gut churned, spread through his limbs. What matters to you? He glanced at the sealed door at the back of the basement, before which stood a human woman armed with an automatic rifle, a short sword strapped to her thigh. This woman had one mission and one mission only. Protect would lay behind that door. Druja's husband. Druja's ten-year-old daughter. In the holotank, the killer smashed through another set of double doors on the far side of the makeshift ops center. More hurricane than human, the beast rushed down another hallway toward what waited at its end. A stairwell that led to the basement. The man wasn't even bothering to hide himself anymore. He wanted Druge to know he was coming. Wanted Druge to know he was close. The killer would dash down the stairs, but he couldn't do much once he came face to face with the basement's blast door. Druge knew. The door was made from three feet of reinforced crystal. Nothing short of an air-to-surface missile could penetrate it. The killer would never get inside. Druge calmed himself. He'd prepared for this. He was always prepared. The entire basement control room was armored and sealed. The gunship could use high-caliber anti-personnel guns to strafe the mansion, turn wood into splinters and stone into powder. The killer could hide from sensors and from sight, but he wasn't invisible to the thousands of bullets that would soon take away any hiding place he sought. Druge only had to hold on a little while longer. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler. Engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envision 
legend a docile herd animal, but one team member had another darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.